Book Three, Chapter Two of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book Three, Chapter Two. Oh, the little more, and how much it is, and the little less, and what worlds away. The four sisters had inhabited the smart little box on the Borough Bridge Road for about four months, when Elizabeth's scanty stock of patience came to an end. Gertrude's small despotism, Diana's languors and affectations and headaches, she could abide no longer. She was brought so much closer to these evils in that circumscribed abode. She had no hillside orchard whither to flee at any hour of the day or evening, even on cold spring nights when the young moon was sailing through the clouds and when hawley had shut its shutters and lighted its lamps for the night and it would have been an outrage of all the proprieties to go out for a walk no airy turret half bedchamber and half sitting-room where she could read or muse in solitude only a neat little square bedroom divided from gertrude's by so fragile a partition that its inmates were wont to whisper like conspirators in their vesper talk the vicar's death too had given gertrude a new position in the home circle she assumed the responsibility of their future life she had chosen and taken the house and selected the furniture they were to keep and regulated the mode and manner of their new life which friends and acquaintances of the past they were chiefly to cherish and which they were gently and graciously to let drop. Gertrude kept the purse and the keys, regulated the expenditure, and held possession of the narrow store-closets. The younger sisters could hardly order an extra cup of tea without permission, or breakfast in bed perchance on a bleak winter morning, without inventing some ailment as an excuse for that indulgence. Diana submitted from sheer laziness i must live with some one who will order my dinner and pour out my tea for me she said and it may as well be gertrude as any one else i dare say if i were rich enough to have a confidential maid she would tyrannise over me one day toward the end of march elizabeth astonished her sisters by declaring her intention of going abroad straight away i shall go over to dieppe she said and wander through normandy and then make my way somehow to belgium my geographical ideas are the vaguest but i shall find out everything when i'm there and then perhaps i shall go up the rhine and i don't think i shall come back until the winter i've been reading up a foreign bradshaw and making tremendous calculations about ways and means oh, by the by gertrude how much have we each to live upon i know i can manage with it for i mean to do things in a strong-minded economical way travelling third class and even walking from one town to another when the distances are short and third-class travelling is dirt cheap on the continent i shall wear no fine washing dresses nothing more expensive than a linsey gown and a waterproof cloak until this moment gertrude had only been able to stare even the languid diana dropped her novel and looked her astonishment at this wild proposition are you mad elizabeth exclaimed the eldest sister sternly or do you mean this for a joke i'm not 
mad not a wee bit wood as the scotch say she had read a little of burns with her lover and i have long left off joking oh pray don't look so unutterably shocked gertie i really mean what i say what is the use of all this talk about women's rights if one is to be pent up all one's life in a place like this in order to do homage to the proprieties hawley is killing me by inches i shouldn't mind at all dying but i don't want to die of slow poison and my present life is poison to me worse than infinitesimal doses of antimony oh very flattering to the relatives you live with suggested gertrude with dignity oh i don't mean you but this house hawley everything old lady paulyn was right we ought to have gone on the continent not to settle down in some prosy old place as she suggested but to wander about people do not half live who live in one place the roving existence you talk of may be very well for persons of your impatient temperament said gertrude but for my own part i could not live without a settled home and i believe that diana and blanche share my feelings on that point i am not quite sure of that gertie said the intractable blanche hawley is very well in its way and we know plenty of people and are sure to be asked to ever so many croquet parties in the summer oh, but i should dearly love roaming about the world with lizzie in a linsey gown and a waterproof cried diana incredulously what would you do with all the time you spend before your looking-glass in that case i could get on without a looking-glass if there were something worth living for said the damsel do not let us descend to puerilities observed gertrude with her air of practical wisdom such a mode of life as elizabeth suggests is quite out of the question imagine my sister wandering about alone in third-class carriages stopping at second-rate inns exposing herself to insult from underbred foreigners oh that's only your insular prejudice said elizabeth remember all the nice books we've read about lady travellers uh, from ostend to the tyrol for a five-pound note third-class passengers to the jungfrau meat teas and glaciers or a maiden dance adventure in savoy and so on those books seem all to be written by unprotected females of limited means so why shouldn't i get on just as well as other unprotected females if you were forty years of age the idea might be somewhat less preposterous would it i'm sure i feel as if i were sixty but however that may be i must positively get away from hawley the air of the boroughbridge road disagrees with me you must give me my share of our income gertie which would be about seventy-five pounds is it really so much as that i should feel immensely rich on the continent with thirty shillings a week you appear to forget that this house was taken with a view to joint occupation well you can keep ten pounds a year for my share of the rent and taxes gertrude argued for an hour and even diana took the trouble to remonstrate 
but it was in vain that both ladies endeavoured to demonstrate the actual impossibility of such a life as elizabeth proposed to lead the girl was inflexible i am of age she said and no one has the faintest right to curtail my liberty i've set my heart upon getting away from hawley blanche can go with me if she likes she and i have always got on very well together but if she doesn't like i shall go alone i suppose you forget that you have expectations from aunt chevenix said gertrude as a final argument and that such a step as you contemplate is likely to alienate her affection for ever i've never allowed expectations to stand in my way answered elizabeth scornfully and as i can live upon a pound a week i can afford to be independent of aunt chevenix remonstrances being useless the two elder sisters bewailed their sister's folly in secret it was a complete disruption of the small household blanche elected to follow the fortunes of elizabeth agreeing to pay her share of the rent during her absence the most melancholy point in the whole affair was the diminution of state which this severance would necessitate one of the two servants the irreproachable parlour-maid who wore muslin aprons would have to be dismissed now that the cost of her maintenance could no longer be shared by the four sisters this fact moved both gertrude and diana more deeply than the loss of their younger and wilder sisters providence however had a care for their interests and an event was looming in the future which was destined to alter elizabeth's views or rather to present her with a more brilliant opportunity of escape from the life that had become obnoxious to her she was walking along one gusty afternoon about a week after the first discussion of her foreign wanderings and had rambled farther than usual on the road between hawley and ashcombe a road that was little better than a winding lane that meandered through a long valley at the foot of the moor following the course of a stream that brawled and babbled over its rocky bed in the winters swollen to the dimensions of a river and in dry summers vanished altogether from the eye of man leaving its bare stony bed to bleach in the sun the deep banks of the lane were thickly clothed with greenest ferns in the late summer time but at this season there were only a few violets nestling in the mossy turf through which the red rich soil of the west peeped here and there in ruddy patches this lane was a favourite walk of elizabeth's young oaks and older scotch firs rose like a forest on one side the steep shoulder of the moor shut it in on the other a solitary darksome place in the chill march dusk gloomy with nature's pensive gloom a very cloister in which to meditate upon the faults and follies of her blighted life the boundary of her longest rambles was an old stone bridge about three miles from hawley at a point where the stream widened and made a sharp curve across the road a very ancient bridge covered with grey old mosses and pale sea-green lichens and supposed to have been built by those indefatigable road-makers the romans here she lingered this afternoon resting a little with her folded arms upon the parapet watching the faint pale moon driven wildly through a cloudy grey sky i don't suppose i shall be any happier abroad than i am here she said to herself ruminating upon her new scheme of life but at least i shall have something to do 
and i shall not have so much time for thought if i keep jogging on from one place to another this was the result of all her meditations that afternoon she looked forward to the change in her existence not with actual pleasure only with a vague hope of relief she had been standing on the bridge about ten minutes now following the moon till she was lost in a sea of clouds now watching the water gurgling over the stones when she heard the approach of a horseman in the quiet lane some farmer no doubt she didn't trouble herself to look around but waited till he should pass before beginning her homeward walk he rode briskly enough up to the hedge and then slackened his pace and rode slowly across and then to her surprise drew rein suddenly on the other side sprang from his horse and came toward her miss luttrell is it really you she turned quickly her pale face flushing in the twilight it was the first time she had ever blushed at his coming lord paulyn she exclaimed as much surprised by his appearance as if she had been a thousand miles from his domains i thought i could not be mistaken he cried holding out both his hands but only receiving one of hers and that one given with a reluctant air but i should never have expected to find you in this wretched lane alone too i haven't seen you since the vicar's death and i ought to have written i dare say oh, but i'm not a dab at well i mean i'm a poor hand at penmanship i should have telegraphed to you to say how sorry i was only i knew my mother would do all that kind of thing oh, thanks i don't think anybody's condolences of much use in such cases however well meant one loses all one has to love in the world and one's friends write polite letters with quotations from scripture which are usually incorrect this with a faint attempt at carelessness but with tears rising unbidden to her eyes but you haven't lost all you love seizing upon the small black-gloved hand and possessing himself of it in spite of her at least not all who love you that is to say there is one foolish beggar i can vouch for who still loves you to distraction i am not at all aware of any such person's existence oh, let go my hand please lord paulyn you are pressing the rings into my fingers I, I beg your pardon unwillingly releasing it but don't pretend not to know elizabeth that's too bad i dare say other fellows have made themselves foolish about you but you know who i mean when i talk of loving you to distraction you know that there was never any man so infatuated as i've been as i still am worse luck about miss ramsay i presume with a chilling air oh come now lizzie don't be absurd has my mother been letting out any of her fine schemes for getting me to marry sarah ramsay a young woman of thirty with freckles and sandy hair and about as much figure as a broomstick <laughs> she is to have something like half a million of money i believe for her marriage portion and a million or two when her father departs this life <laughs> my mother picked her up at torquay in the autumn and has been trying it on ever since but without effect i'm the kind of horse that may be brought to the water but i don't drink unless i'm thirsty lady paulyn told me you were going to be married to miss ramsay 
that it was a settled thing then she told you an infernal lie a little thrill of pleasure stirred elizabeth's heart at this unfilial observation it was not that she liked lord paulyn or that she was proud of his constancy or grateful for his affection or that she had at that moment any idea of marrying him she was merely pleased to discover that she had not been superseded that she still retained her dominion over him still held him in her thrall that she could go home to her sisters and tell them how egregiously they had been duped by the dowager's diplomatic falsehoods <laughs> no lizzie i never cared for any one but you the young man went on after he had muttered his indignation at the dowager's attempt to deceive and i suppose i shall go on caring for you till the end of my days it's the most miserable infatuation do you know that i am tolerably safe to win the derby this year with a horse i bred myself his sire was one of the old dutchman's stock and his dam was sisters to styriacs who won the two thousand six years ago and the chester cup the year after yes lizzie i think the derby's a safe thing this year and yet i set no more value upon it than if it was nothing think of that lizzie the blue ribbon of the turf i've been winning no end of things lately yacht races and so on last year and a cup at newmarket the other day it's the old adage you know unlucky in love but i'd rather win you for my wife than a half a dozen consecutive derbies come now liz it's all off with that other fellow he's off the course lord knows where what is there to stand between us well merely the fact that mr ford is the only man i ever loved and i'm not quite sure i don't love him still i owe you at least candour it is a very humiliating confession to make but i do not mind telling you that i loved him very dearly and that my heart was almost broken by his desertion confounded snob said the viscount but i'm very glad he did make himself scarce it would have been a most unsuitable match a splendid girl like you born to adorn a coronet and all that kind of thing but i say lizzie who gave you leave to call me by my christian name she asked looking round at him indignantly she had been staring at the little river hurrying over its rugged bed hardly seeming to listen to lord paulyn's discourse he had his horse's bridle on his arm and found some hindrance to eloquence in the restlessness of that animal oh, come now it's not much of a privilege to ask after standing all i've stood for you and being laughed at by my friends into the bargain but i say elizabeth i want to talk to you seriously i only ran down from london by last night's limited mail and the chief motive that brought me here was the thought i might find you a little better disposed towards me when the edge of your feeling about that parson fellow had worn off you've had time to grow wiser since we last met and to find out there's something more in the world than sentimental parsons by jove i should think hawley was a favourable place for reflection a regular harvey's meditations among the tombs kind of a place you've had time to think it all over lizzie 
and i hope you've made up your mind that you might be happier knocking about the world with me than moping here alone be my wife lizzie i've been constant to you all this time though you always treated me badly you can't be so hard-hearted as to refuse me now she was slow to answer him still watching the swift flowing river as if she were seeking some augury in the gurgle of the waters even when she did speak it was with her eyes still bent upon the stream i know that i am supremely miserable here she said and that is all i know about myself but you might be happier in the world lizzie with me who could be anything but miserable moping in such a hole as this demanded lord paulyn with a contemptuous glance at the darkening moorland as if it had been the meanest thing in nature she scarcely heeded the manner of his speech or the words that composed it she was debating a solemn question holding counsel with herself should she astonish all her friends prove that she the rejected of malcolm ford could mount to dazzling worlds beyond their ken the days of her humiliation had been very bitter to her she had eaten ashes for bread and moistened them with angry tears the fact that she cared nothing for this man that her chief feeling about him was a sentiment verging upon contempt hardly entered into her thoughts to-night they were too exclusively selfish self was the very centre of her little world her own humiliation her own disappointments made up the sum total of her universe whatever was womanly or true or noble in her nature had begun and ended with her love for malcolm ford an hour ago she had believed lord paulyn as completely lost to her as her father's curate and she had begun to regret the folly that had cost her all the splendours of that brighter world which had seemed so very fair to her two years ago and behold here was the constant lover again at her side again offering her his rank and wealth not from the haughty altitude of a king cofetua to his beggar-maid but urging his plea like a condemned felon beseeching the reversal of his doom busy thoughts of what her life might be in the years to come if she accepted him busy thoughts of the dull blank it needs must be if she rejected him crowded her brain selfishness ambition pride all the worst vices of her nature won the victory she turned to her lover at last with a face that was very pale in the dim light and said slowly if you really wish it if you are content to take me without any profession of love or sentiment on my side i made an end of those when i quarrelled with my first lover if you can be satisfied with such an indifferent bargain if cried the young man with sudden energy putting his disengaged arm around her reluctant figure which recoiled involuntarily from that token of appropriation oh, that means yes and you've made me the happiest fellow in devonshire the horse that can stay is the winner after all <laughs> i always said i'd have you for my wife lizzie and now i shall keep my word from that moment her doom was sealed there was no looking backward 
lord paulyn took possession of his prize with the iron hand of some lawless sea-ranger swooping upon a disabled merchantman that had drifted across his track from that hour elizabeth luttrell had a master end of book three chapter two